This is exactly right. Neurobrain diverse. It's just the idea that all of our brains are wired a little differently, even two twins. You know, it's a very kind and compassionate phrase. The idea behind it is that if you are different, it doesn't mean that you are wrong or that you are bad or that something's, you know, ill-wired in you. It just means we're different and that's great. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Canaries Among Us with our guest, Kayla Taylor. Kayla is the author of Canaries Among Us, a mother's journey to honor her child's individuality in a culture determined to negate it. Kayla graduated from a few respected schools and held some high-pressure jobs, but nothing has been more challenging and rewarding than raising her wonderfully unique children. She also supports organizations dedicated to improving pediatric health and education. In fact, she's donating her profits from the sale of this first edition to organizations advocating for neurodiversity and mental health. Kayla, welcome to the show. Dr. Dan, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So your book resonated with me at multiple, multiple levels um, as a psychologist who spends his career in days working and understanding and advocating and champion for neurodiverse individuals and families. Having a family of neurodiversity and also having kids who unfortunately have experienced um, some of the bullying challenges that your book centers around. So I just want to say it, it spoke to me very personally and professionally. And because of that, it was both completely uplifting and also an emotional journey to 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 read about your journey as a parent trying to understand trying to protect trying to educate and and the powerlessness at times that goes with all of that well dr dan that that's a pretty powerful introduction thank you so much i'm so touched that it moved you in so many ways that was ultimately my goal uh, i think you probably know from your practice that so many kids and so many families are dealing with these issues but there's not a lot of conversation. I think the stigma just stymies people. So people feel so isolated and alone. That was the main reason I wrote this book. Um, I wished it had been available for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm trying to pay it forward and tell the story that's not being told, but is so, so common all around us. And and I'm so sorry your 
you can relate mm-hmm. to the bullying aspect. Unfortunately, far too many kids can. Yes, yes. Thank you. So the tremendous empathy for you and your family as well. I um, So what you weave together is this important conversation. There's the conversation of neurodiversity, which we shall... Um, explain to our audience so everyone's clear on what that is. And then there's the conversation of bullying. And then there is the intermingling or the um, overlap in these populations. So tell us a little bit about each of what you what you mean by each neurodiversity and bullying, what you've come to learn about these populations. Right. Okay. Well, that's a big question because I've spent three years studying them and mm-hmm. it sounds like you've spent your career studying them. So you can, I, you know, we should yeah. probably have, be having this conversation together. I, when I was going through this journey, found that as I was coming across these issues, people were managing them independently and wanted me to. In fact, even as I was proposing the idea of this book, I can't tell you the number of agents that told me that I was trying to tackle too much. I need Mm -hmm. to to write a a book just on bullying or just on learning differences or just on mental health. But that, um, that confused me and it almost even angered me because these issues are highly intertwined. And that is what was so debilitating, how they, uh, weave and wind and conflate and that, that, that is what I wanted to explore because I knew so many families were dealing with that. And I also, I mean, I felt more buoyed by the research. Uh, so, for example, 45% of kids with learning differences report being bullied. And 29% of kids with learning differences also have an anxiety disorder. So to manage them in isolation just didn't make sense to me. And it became apparent to me, you know, th- there are a lot of statistics I could give you. Um, but, you know, a few I found were quite jaw-dropping. So, for example, males who are bullied, um, according to one Harvard article I read, they're 18 times more likely to experience suicidality. And female targets are 27 times more likely to contend with panic disorders. Now, I I don't mean to be histrionic or suggest Mm -hmm. that every child who is bullied or who has learning differences will have suicidal ideation or panic disorders. Mm -hmm. But I think it's clear that if we want to have a healthy society and raise healthy children, we need to manage these issues when they arise so they don't uh, snowball into something you know, that nobody wants. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I guess you asked a lot of questions in one. Though. I, you did. Asked, <laughs> I did. So um, you asked about neurodiversity. Yes. When I first study, started studying neurodiversity, actually, so uh, this was not too long ago uh, when my child was going through this incident, let's say five years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, someone uh, mentioned the idea of neurodiversity to me, and I looked it up, and it wasn't in the dictionary. <laughs> Which I um, saw that, and that is fascinating. Like that, that is. Fa- it, doesn't it say a lot? It I does. think it says a lot. Um, but and, and as I looked uh, around for it, neurodiversity it, people seem to use it primarily to refer to people on the autism spectrum. Yeah. Which is great. So I, but it seemed to me that even just the sound of it, it, it the definition it makes sense to have it be even broader than that. So neuro brain diverse, it's just the idea that all of our brains are wired a little differently. Even two twins, um, you know, will behave, behave and act and experience their environment differently based on their neural wiring. Um, you know, it's a very kind and compassionate phrase, a, because it sounds positive and Mm -hmm. it, it honors that, um, 
the idea behind it is that if you are different, it doesn't mean that you're wrong or that you're mm-hmm. bad or that something's, mm-hmm. you know, ill-wired in you. It just means we're different and that's great. So I really like that term. Um, and I, I started using it a few years ago um, to refer in my writing to learning differences. And I see the general population is doing that more now it as is. well. It is. It is. It's fortunately expanded. Um, uh, my experience is the same as yours. It, The autism community is such a powerful, mm-hmm. advocating... Which is wonderful. In many ways, right, collective community. And really, right. it, it's really been that many of the other di- neurodiverse communities, such as dyslexia, um, ADHD, are often, I want to say in, in, in a very positive way, have been riding on the coattails and trying to take a page of what the autism community has done to um, to help us all understand um, that neurodiverse profile. But I do think in this last five years, uh, particularly, there is a movement of neurodiversity which is much more affirming and much more inclusive of different sorts of learning and processing issues as well. That's been my experience as well, which I'm so happy about because I think the more people that we can bring together to just have people appreciate any sort of difference, no matter what it is, mm-hmm. benefits not just the individual who might not fit in a box, but our entire community. Mm-hmm. Bullying. Yes. That was the other part of that was the other that part was. of my 25 part uh, question. Yes, um, you asked bully. how I would define it. Yes, how would how do you, you define it? Correct. Yes. Well, so I'm glad you asked that because I found along my journey that one of the biggest problems is that everybody knows bullying is bad. I mean, I Mm -hmm. I doubt you or I would run into anybody who would say, oh, yeah, bullying's good. But I think one of the biggest problems occurs is when it occurs and people don't identify it as such. And so I think a definition really helps um, so that we are better able to see it when it happens. And I did a ton of research on this too. I'm sure you have, and you um, could probably be leading this uh, conversation, but you asked me the question. So I'll tell you, um, you know, I was the big dork who uh, was being, well, I was being told that bullying wasn't happened to my, happening to my child. And I was pretty sure it was. I mean, if you saw my, the way my child looked crawled, uh, you know, curled up in a ball, you, you knew something mm-hmm. wasn't going right. So, um, you know, I read all the books, um, and, but I couldn't find, you know, one definitive guide. So then at the, in the books, I looked at the footnotes and paid twenty nine ninety five for the various, you know, research articles. And it seemed to me that the, the most common definition was something like bullying. Um, bullying is the act of repeatedly and intentionally causing physical and or emotional harm to another person with less power. Mm-hmm. And it can take the forms of physical and cyber, which I think most people notice. But yep. it, as it says in the definition, verbal, you know, taunts and threats also count, and mm-hmm. social exclusion and hum- humiliation also count. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when we have a definition, um, it you know it became easier for me to advocate for my my child um, because all of those, the repeated, the intentional, the harm, and the less power, all applied in our case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, as you're talking, um, I'm realizing I, I wanted to take a step back to also mention that um, in your your preface, the courage, I mean, the courage that it took to write this book, but also I want to say the, um, 
trying to find the word, the respect you actually have for all included, as you point out, the people who did things right and the people who did things wrong. You are worked very hard to not contribute to the negative, um, the negative outcomes of shaming people and making them feel bad, even those who so wronged your child. Right. Well, you know, I've read my fair share of Brene Brown. (laughs) I've taken my lessons from her and learned that shame really doesn't help anybody. But, Mm -hmm. but I'll tell you, you know, you go through an experience like this and I'm guessing you can commiserate. There is a fair Mm -hmm. amount of anger and I I did have to put a lid on that Um, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I, I wanted this, I decided my target audience was the people, particularly the parents, who felt isolated and alone dealing with these issues. And I wanted them to know they're not alone. So that was my story. And then I wanted to provide some resources. As you probably saw in the back, there's a list of resources in case they need more information to advocate for their kids. Mm-hmm. I decided, you know, I can't be that book and also a salacious expose outing, you know, the bad actors. Mm-hmm. Um, though I will tell you, <laughs> my initial foray into publishing, I, I've never published a book before. Um, you know, I never thought of myself as a writer. But uh, when I initially considered writing this book and publishing it, uh, the number of people in the industry, the publishing industry, um, who told me that I needed to morph this book because it would sell more copies um, if it was an expose. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was high. So I, I really had to stand my ground, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's hard to do because I know nothing about publishing or writing. Who am I to say? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I decided this whole point of this is honoring the reader, the parent. Mm-hmm. And if that means not publishing a book, then fine. That means not publishing a book. I mean, mm-hmm. I, yeah, that, that just was the only option for me. That's awesome. And I just want to bring in, uh, you know, Brene Brown, obviously an amazing, um, just an amazing leader in our field of mental health and wellness and personal growth. I also want to bring in, you're making me think of Martha Beck, um, whose most recent book is The Way of Integrity, which is an amazing book. And I want to say like you have so stood in your integrity through this process. It seems like it almost guided you. I mean, it was like, it was a guiding light. Wow. Well, thank you. I really, I really tried. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny you say guided light. There were a few in this. I I feel like if you can just, you know, when you're so deep in all these confusing aspects, if you can just choose, for me, you know, I chose one or two things that were really important, like honoring the parent. Um, You know, (laughs) I, I guess I didn't have your verbiage, but, you know, being the person you want your children to be able to be, you know, role modeling, you know, I couldn't go out there and be brash and rude and sell other people's kids down the river if, you know, my whole goal was getting people to respect and honor my kids, right? So um, I I had to, I had to choose a tact and stick with it even when it was hard. So thank Mm -hmm. you for seeing that because it wasn't always easy. No, I can imagine. Um, this is October when um, your book is being released, when the show is being released, and it is also National Bowling Prevention Month, which is so important. So this is also a very uh, timely, a timely talk. However, bullying happens every single day, everywhere, and that's why this awareness is so important because. A lot of the time, there are no bruises, there are no cuts, there are no stitches. I mean, that that is what everyone, I think, I mean, that, of course, still happens. Um, mm-hmm. 
a lot, but that is where a lot of people think about. Um, and with cyberbullying, as our kids are getting older and all of the social media and all of the emotional savvy, um, you know, to be stereotypical, it does seem that often like girls are sophisticated at, at earlier ages than boys are in some of these social games just from development. Um, and boys tend to be more physical, whereas girls tend to be much more um, is cunning the right word? Manipulative? What would you say from, <laughs> from, from your? Well, I'm saying from your story. I, again, I don't want to generalize uh, male female. Well, I'm yeah. So I think that's experience. probably an important point you're making. You know, any gender can exhibit any of these behaviors. But I think what you're getting at is all kids are smart in their own ways, and they're not doing this in front of us adults, right? Mm, they right. are, they're smart. They're choosing their moments. They're choosing their times. And I think that's probably why most adults don't realize how common bullying is. You know, the experts believe it happens to about 20 to 30% of all kids. Right. Um, I can tell you, I haven't seen it happen to 20 to 30% of all kids, but I also know they're doing it behind my back. Um, right. And also kids aren't reporting the bullying. Wow. And I think my understanding is one of the main reasons is that they're worried, they're concerned that uh, the adults won't hand it, handle it in a way that helps them. And I, I, you know, I find that really sad. So hopefully we as adults can come together and learn more so we can really support our children, especially the ones who need it most. Yes. And I, um, so thank you for saying that. And I also want to, again, clarify, these are not, um, any gender can do any of these things. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking back to in the early elementary school years, there tends to be seemingly patterns that we see at different ages and stages, but this is, this is universal. Yeah. And you're right though. The science backs up some gender differences and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but, and I think where you were leading, um, is that, was the point that we can't dismiss the verbal and the social bullying. Um, it might mm -hmm. be harder to notice, but the effects of being socially isolated or humiliated or excluded mm -hmm. are devastating. Um, you know, our mm -hmm. attorney general is talking about that right now, about um, a pan what is he calling it? A pandemic of isolation. Right. Um, you know, what uh, feeling all alone and being excluded and humiliated feels like and what is it, what it does to your psyche and your sense of well-being is devastating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's so painful. And as you point out, it, it, it leads to potentially leads to lots of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where we can't, that, I mean, there's multiple reasons this is so, this conversation is so important, but we have to connect the dots to let people know that mistreatment of any sort makes people vulnerable for mental health and physical health issues that can be transient or can ultimately become chronic. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, given your background, you're a doctor, um, I bet I had to learn this. Um, you know, bullying is a form of victimization. And threatening behavior literally activates your brain, um, the amygdala, the, portion, the part of the brain that deals with the stress response. So, you know, most of us call this the fight or flight or freeze response. Mm -hmm. So when kids are threatened, they don't feel safe in school. They have to become vigilant and they have to focus all their attention on their environment and staying safe. So 
when they're fighting or flight flighting or freezing flighting that's not a word they're you know they're yeah. they're leaving or freezing they can't learn um they can't reach their academic or social development potentials and um you know the consequences you know roll on from there they feel socially isolated they have low self-esteem there are stress-related ailments headaches stomach aches, problems sleeping um, which of course leads to mental health issues like anxiety or depression um mm-hmm. and as we mentioned uh, earlier, unfortunately, there is a tie to uh, suicidal ideation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's academic impairment, substance abuse, and then that leads into delinquency and crime. So, um, and as you mentioned, you know, people think of mental health. I actually make a, you probably noticed, uh, a big um, motion in the book to consider mental health brain health. It is part of our mm-hmm. body. It's not something ephemeral and separate. Mm-hmm. And so when our brain is stressed, um, there, it actually causes inflammation. It's connected to the other parts of our body, right? And inflammation has been shown to have long-term health risks like diabetes and heart disease. So the the consequences of not de- de- acknowledging bullying are significant. Um, mm-hmm. And actually not just for the child being bullied, for the whole environment. So a lot of those consequences have been shown to be um, to affect bystanders as well. You know, they don't feel safe in communities mm-hmm. where they see those around them um, being mistreated, where there's no community code that honors, you know, each of our humanity. And right. unfortunately, right. a lot of bystanders, in order to not be picked on themselves, uh, will lower their heads, which is totally understandable who wants to be picked on, but then they later have a sense of moral failure and then that affects their sense of well-being. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we really need to create environments where kids feel that they can be, will be empowered and supported when they stand up for one another. What I found most interesting, Dr. Dan, is that um, the youth who bully also experience all these mental health issues. You know, I hadn't really considered them as much. You, you just, you know, you usually feel mm-hmm. for the victim. Right. Um, but honestly, what I read was their consequences can be even more drastic, especially later in life. You know, mm-hmm. when there's no, when they aren't taught pro-social behavior earlier in life, mm-hmm. um, later in life, they have difficulty maintaining relationships and jobs. Um, there's more, there's a higher incident sorry, incidents of spousal and child abuse and criminal behavior. So we were really um, not helping anybody when we look right. the other way when bullying happens. Right. That, and this is, you got to sometimes dig deep this way when there is a child who is hurting your child mm-hmm. or other children in your community that that child is likely hurting as well or something is happening or has happened to them. Right. So having... You know, it wasn't easy, but having empathy for the children who are hurting my children mm-hmm. actually helped. It, it helped me not get caught in, you know, this spiral of anger. It helped me see that the problem was not the children. These are innocent children. The problem was the environment mm-hmm. and, you know, the adults not addressing the behavior when it happened. So, mm-hmm. you know, my frustration um, is towards the adults and the people in charge, not towards the children. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. these children, you know, when they aren't taught how to be pro-social when they're young, do grow up to be the adults who don't Mm -hmm. stop bullying um, later. So we we need to stop the cycle. What did you, what have you learned um, from a systems perspective at, you know, your child's schools and, and uh, the research that you've done? What are the, what are the factors that keep these 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 adults and these systems for doing the right thing. 
Well, you know, I think uh, most people want to do the right thing. You know, nobody says, I want to allow bullying in schools. But there does seem to be a pandemic. And, and I think that's probably just because the the resources aren't readily available. I really couldn't find a definitive guide. Um, and I hope, you know, I would love for someone to write that book. Maybe, Dr. Dan, you can write that book. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got my some... money on you. I got my, you are now <laughs> a definitive expert, Kayla. No, no, no. There actually are experts, yeah. but they're often in university settings. Mm-hmm. And I think they're encouraged to publish in, you know, exclusive journals where, you know, the universities, you probably know how this works better than I do, where the universities, you know, again, get twenty nine ninety five for each journal article you read. Um, I would love for, you know, basically the world's experts to come together. I know they do. They have conferences, um, world conferences, but I would love for them to publish something that's more readily accessible Mm -hmm. to schools and teachers and parents. That would be really helpful. Um, But you alluded to, you know, I think you alluded to uh, wondering if there are things that have been shown to be helpful. And across all my reading, um, different people said different things, but I did, you know, notice that there were a few common threads, um, including anti-bullying efforts need to be pervasive and long-term and integrated. So you can't just teach a class on bullying. Um, You also have to look on the playground. Uh, You can't just teach students. Um, We we need to include the administration, teachers, and parents in in the effort. Um, You know, there are a lot of social-emotional classes going on these days, which is great, but I feel like that often results in a one-day class and you put a poster on your wall that says, we don't bully here, and you feel morally credentialed, and then you're done and you move on to the next thing. But Mm -hmm. this kind of thing uh, needs to be wed throughout your entire school. Um, So -hmm. another thing that was really common common requirement was um, transparent and well-defined policies for both preventing and uh, bullying before it happens and addressing bullying when it happens. Unfortunately, you know, my school, I asked many times, refused to do that. I think the administration wanted leeway to handle things um, as they saw fit, you know, Mm -hmm. behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. but that um, built a huge lack of trust for me. Um, And, um, you know, for me, I think, uh, especially after reading what the uh, scholars say, is, is a really crucial element of a successful bullying program. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that they said is most supportive is authentically true, like kind cultures. Um, so again, you can't just put a poster on a wall. You have to walk your walk, and that is role modeled on top. So, for example, if you have an author- authoritarian leader who is being rude to the teachers, um, you know those teachers are then frustrated, and then they're going to the classrooms not being their best selves. But you really need to have this sweet, kind culture um, mm-hmm. that that is pervasive. So culture is also particularly important because it helps foster one of the, what is apparently the largest deterrence, which I think, as we mentioned earlier, is peer intervention. When um, bystanders are empowered to stick up for others, um, mm-hmm. bullying rates drop precipitously. And this makes sense because usually the adults aren't around to manage it. It's the peers that are around to stick up for others. Um, I have found that often, and there's a lot of research on this too, People who speak up, um, who are whistleblowers, are often treated like traitors or snitches, right? Mm-hmm. But if we can create cultures that treat them, um, that celebrate them, and treat them as you know the heroes that they are, 
um, mm-hmm. and empower them, uh, uh, we will probably have environments that have much lower rates of bullying. In fact, the research shows that's true. And there are also things like anonymous reporting systems. Um, because people often have a hard time coming forward because they're scared of retaliation, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's several things we can do um, that you know that that can lead to decreases in bullying. And there are some great websites like Pacer.com, um, StopBullying.gov. There are some great resources. But as I said, I would love for someone to write the definitive guide. Mm-hmm. But what that what the guides don't do, um, I think maybe one reason there isn't a definitive guide is because that each environment is a little bit different. So things need to be tweaked one way or another. But I still think there's some basic fundamental tenets or principles. And I think one thing people really need to be aware of is that um, in your own environment, probably one of the most important things you can do is address any power imbalances. Mm -hmm. As you remember from the definition um, Mm -hmm. that bullying occurs towards people with less power. And what I read in the research, it seemed that the programs that weren't effective didn't address this power imbalance. Mm. Well, and it sounds like even though there are there's different ideas out there, what I what I'm what I'm hearing is if you're an organization, you and you acknowledge that bullying exists, you igno- that you have a transparent way that you work to prevent bullying and then you have a transparent even if it's general guidelines about how you handle it once it occurs to stop it and mitigate it as soon as possible that alone sets the start of a of a healthy culture you still got to do something about it but just putting that out there it seems huge right i, I think that's absolutely true i think one of the reasons at least i experienced um, that schools are hesitant to do this is a lot of schools are worried about the reputation and they want to say no bullying happens here. This is a bullying-free zone. And they're worried if they admit bullying happens there, then people will think it's a bad school. And there was this quote from one of the research I read, which I love, and he said he would be more worried about a school that says they have no bullying than a school mm-hmm. that documents many, many, many cases of bullying. Yes, because bullying happens everywhere. And right. so not acknowledging it is just a red flag. The right. the trick is managing it when it happens. Right. And I and and so to not have shame in it being able to admit it happens because it really is human nature. I mean, mm-hmm. power in power imbalances, um, making others the in group, the out group, making others feel bad to elevate your own power and control. This is all part of our unfortunately, part of our DNA. Well, right. And it's probably developmentally appropriate, right? At this age, kids, kids are testing boundaries, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's just what they do. And power is enticing. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have boundaries and guidelines around how to do that, then the kids can grow up in a more functional mm-hmm. way. I want to um, turn us back towards neurodiversity and your experiences of going through comprehensive neuropsychological evaluations uh, with your kids, which is a whole world, I know. And I, and I, I want to start by just sharing an, an, an experience 
when I, as a psychologist who was doing neuropsychological testing, we had our oldest tested uh, due to some learning and processing differences. And here we were with um, a close friend of mine did the testing. Uh, that friend came over for feedback to our kitchen table just to give us feedback and walk us through and did it in a way that I have done it myself for years at that time, like a very normal, typical way. And I was completely devastated by the findings, the language, and mm. it changed the way that I saw the process talked about the process, talked to parents, and changed the way we do things um, at our center um, as a result of that personal experience. Because you can't explain it, right, unless you're hearing all these negative things about right. your kid. Right. Right. I think that's so powerful that you went through that. You know, there are stories written about doctors who are um, diagnosed with cancer and all of a sudden right. <laughs> learn that they need to change their bedside manner. Right. Um, to be more humane. And um, yes, right now, so as you know, one in five kids have learning differences. That's 20% mm -hmm. of the population. Uh, and that's, you know, th that's the entire population. That's the general education classroom. So, right. you know, every 25 kid classroom has five kids who are by definition, very smart, um, but just aren't going to learn with the, pro the existing protocols in place. Mm -hmm. um, you can mm -hmm. probably say this better, better than I can, but Getting a uh, being diagnosed with learning difference doesn't mean you're not intelligent. My right. understanding is those diagnoses are given when you actually are intelligent. You're more intelligent than your classroom performance suggests. Mm -hmm. uh, but as you say, you know, words like disorder, dysfunction, disability, and deficit deficit are used to describe these differences. And when parents hear those, I mean, it's hard not to take a step back, and because you know you're at home and you see that your kid is capable and functional, and you hear those words, and you know, in some cases, you worry for their future. Um, in many cases, so yeah, I think there are yes, we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses, but uh, there's a way to phrase that. You know, I never worked well for a coach or a boss that harped on my weaknesses, right? Right. Um, so, you know, but those that lean into your strengths and shore up your weaknesses, you know, that's really helpful. So, for example, you know, like if we talk about a kid with dyslexia, um, and again, you should probably be you're the expert here, but my understanding is, that, you know, these kids have a wider visual perception mode than on average, mm -hmm. which can make reading more difficult. Yes, but they also um, are more likely, and not all kids with dyslexia are all the same. I don't mean to say that, but on average, um, they're often more able to notice the bigger picture. They can, uh, you know, John yep. Chambers, who's run Cisco, talks in his book about being able to connect dots that others couldn't see, yes. um, which helped him lead a huge company. Um, these kids can be more creative. So if you only lead in and talk to the parents and the kids about their weaknesses and the remediation needed, um, you know, that's <laughs> that's a warped sort of growth mindset, if you ask me. I mean, it's, you know, totally, totally kid down and saying, hey, let's grow um, versus yeah. like, hey, look, you've got all these strengths. Let's use those to show up your weaknesses. Like, look at all these cool things you can do. And yeah, we need to work on this over here. But and by the way, look at all these leaders in the world that are doing amazing things. 
Um, you mentioned the strengths that uh, people with dyslexia have, and all of the neurodiverse communities have a host of strengths. Um, dyslexics tend to be big picture thinkers. They tend to be able to connect the dots. They are great storytellers and um, have this amazing narrative um, memory and, uh, nar and often narrative or visual speaking skills, um, innovative, um, constructional. So all of that. So here's the, the unfortunate, like we're getting somewhere, but when we get these reports on our kids, we don't always get this stuff. We get the, here's, here's their profile. And I mean, this is how many of us were trained back in grad school is let's identify the diagnoses and the problems and make recommendations for remediation. Now, that is all important in a larger context. And when I was reading what you were writing about Hannah's, the results of Hannah's neuropsych, and there was, you know, sensory processing issues, highly sensitive, anxiety, um, math processing issues. And you had, of course, described her prior to this in the book about an interaction with one of your friends who she's speaking like at an adult, at an adult level, at graduate school, knowledge about... Um, the, you know, the universe or the, the science of the, the, of this person. And then I was reading about some of the testing results and I had to ask, did anyone ever tell you, wow, she's really bright. Wow. She's really creative. Wow. She has some gifted traits. Did, did any of that come into the conversation? No, it didn't. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, um, with people. So when she's out, you know, in the universe. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's that story that you mentioned where she's uh, talking with an, uh, an adult, a math professor, and the professor is blown away. Mm -hmm. um, quite regularly, people look at me and see, say, whoa, this kid is brilliant. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. they're set in their tracks. They almost don't know what to say. But it's interesting. I don't get that feedback much um, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. like a neuropsychological environment and mm -hmm. especially in school. Her, her, her way of being is often not allowed to shine in, right. um, in rigid, more traditional school environments. Absolutely, because it's different. And this is why kids who are either uh, have some level of neurodiversity, um, whether it's uh, behaviorally, developmentally, learning, social processing, um, even intellectual advancement who are, are different, who we call gifted individuals or twice exceptional individuals who are gifted and have learning and processing issues, they do think differently. They do stand out often. And that so obviously makes them more of a target, as we pointed out with mm -hmm. the bullying. Mm -hmm. But also, it's so critical that we affirm and accept and lead with those person's strengths. And so often, that is just not part of the conversation. But it's so critical. Right. And we, I wish we had run into you earlier in our journey. We did not hear a lot of that, either in, um, you know, the appointments with neuropsychologists and, and definitely not in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the concept of 2E and twice exceptional has come up quite a bit since then. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, uh, you know, the word gifted is used often. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, I'm a little hesitant to use those words myself. It's um, my child is, I'll tell you, is now in an environment at a school that 
labels her as gifted. Mm -hmm. And after many years of being demeaned, that has been huge. Mm -hmm. But I personally, and, and you might disagree with me, am hesitant to use that word more broadly. I'm glad that it's given her confidence. But what I worry about that word is it suggests that a few kids are gifted. And mm -hmm. I actually think there's um, a wider variety. There, uh, There's uh, more ways of being intelligent than our current understanding allows. Yes. So I'm sure you're familiar with um, Howard Garner's theory of multiple intelligences. Yes, yes. Um, and he believes that, he, he, you know, when I read that he published, you know, his his learnings 40 years ago, and they're still not uh, intertwined mm -hmm. in our current understandings, I became so frustrated. And it's another reason yeah. I wanted to write this book. Mm -hmm. But he talks about there being a broad range of autonomous intelligences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we currently have a rigid school system that was developed over a hundred years ago, really at the time of Taylorism to put kids on assembly lines. It was not meant to identify uniquenesses and unique strengths of people. No. Um, and so I think, you know, there are more ways, and, and, and so too are, you know, our IQ tests that we commonly use now were developed mm -hmm. around that time. Right. They too um, have specific variables that, you know, truly are social construct and they, miss, I think, a lot of things that are important, like creativity, you mentioned earlier, and divergent thinking. I mean, those yep. are so important and such great signs of intelligence mm -hmm. and so crucial in, you know, being um, capable later in life, but those aren't included. Mm -hmm. And things are included, like a lot of the uh, parts of the test are timed. Right. But what if you're... Right. What if you're anxious, yep. right? right? So what if your brain shuts down and so you bomb that part of the test? Does that mean you you aren't capable of understanding the material? So, um, yeah. you know, you're, yes, we, you know, I'm so proud. I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm, the word gifted has been very helpful for my child, but I just think um, there are more kids who are gifted than we acknowledge because we have very rigid artificial definitions of what gifted is. And I would like us to see, I would like to see us instead of like putting all these kids on bell shaped curves and timing them and stressing them out as we do it to really be looking for their really special individual traits and helping um, those shine and leaning into those to help the kids flourish. Awesome. Okay. Kayla, we, we are we are completely aligned. We are completely aligned, and you just very nicely summarized um, the potential upsides of being seen for having a label, and all of the um, potential downsides and the problems with identification and the limit. So, anytime we have a group of people, you know. It, it it creates problems like the in and the out and do people mm -hmm. on the in get things that the people on the out don't um mm -hmm. we and have, they do they do we have lots mm -hmm. of factors with low low um low socioeconomic status second language learners a lot of ways that mm -hmm. people do not get identified for their strengths so what where we are mm -hmm. agreeing is and this is where really i was shouting in my head at the book is <laughs> is she's like hannah is getting bullied no one's admitting it she clearly thinks differently she clearly has some advanced development that is different than her peers her verbal precociousness um mm -hmm. and i was like is anyone seeing that is anyone calling that out is anyone saying like you 
are awesome. You are such a great thinker. You are able to do these things that, and think about these things that other kids your age don't, even though there's these other things that are easier for kids your age that are harder for you. Like, you know, like Dr. Dan, the answer is no, (laughs) because I think unfortunately we aren't equipping our teachers with the kind of knowledge that you have. Um, You know, I looked into the various uh, graduate school programs and they uh, don't teach uh, teachers how to identify learning differences. You can go mm-hmm. through some of the most rigorous programs in the country and not take and graduate and not take one class on learning differences. Mm-hmm. You uh, can get, um, you know, I, I don't know what degree they give you, but have a focus on um, special education right. and only, only take one class. Right. The state's credentialing programs teach nothing. Mm-hmm. At least when I studied this a few years ago, and it wasn't that long ago, um, I'm guessing you've probably read Forward Together. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing report uh, produced by Understood and NCLD, which uh, goes into all of this and shows how we are really um, abandoning our teachers and not giving them, the, you know, not only are we underpaying them, which I think we can all agree on, right. we um, are not preparing them to teach the students that are in their classroom, um, even the ones with mild to moderate learning differences. Apparently only 17% of teachers feel very well prepared to teach uh, students with mild to moderate learning differences. Mm-hmm. Um, so they feel under, overwhelmed and unsupported. I mean, it, we're really putting our teachers in a bad spot. Yeah. And all yeah. this leads to judgment. So one in three teachers and I assume parents too, um, view learning differences or attention issues as laziness. So now right. we've started to blame the kid, right? right. One right. in four believe learning differences can be outgrown when, as you have studied, it's their mm-hmm. neurological differences. Like right. brains can are literally wired differently. You don't mm-hmm. outgrow that. Yes, there's neuroplasticity where you can create more synapses, connections, mm-hmm. and your brain can grow and you can learn. But to assume that learning differences will be outgrown yeah. Um, is, yeah. is just not right. And no. for example, one in four uh, believe ADD, ADHD is a result of bad parenting, <laughs> which, you know, of course, leads yeah. to a lot of judgment. A lot of judgment. So as you know, like lack of understanding, you know, ignorance leads to judgment yeah. and it's just the last thing we need, right. it, you know, in our homes or in our schools as we raise these children. Right. You know, we we want to be supporting them and treasuring them and valuing their strengths. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned in the book, and you just mentioned now, Understood, uh, which understood.org, everyone, is an amazing online. Truly. Um, it's got everything about neurodiversity and resources and articles. And um, it's um, organized by different um, labels and profiles. And so that's just a great resource for anyone who knows that they have a neurodiverse kid or is wondering whether they have a neurodiverse kid. And I should add, if you have a neurodiverse kid, there are many of us along the way that learn that we are also neurodiverse ourselves through our child's experience. <laughs> Isn't that funny? You yeah. learn about your kids and you think, huh, yeah. you know, this is sounding great for you. I have never been diagnosed, but I'd be willing to, be- to bet I'm inattentive. Mm-hmm. I mean, if like, the number yeah. of times, you know, I was reading textbooks and I had to read the same page three times because I just could not stay focused on it. Yeah. Um, yes. I- I'd be willing to bet I'm, yeah, inattentive. I am wondering if you can share with us how you have changed as a person and as a parent from being on this journey with your kids and what you guys have been through? I think one of the biggest changes for me is, and I'm going to tell you something that I'm not proud of, 
I think I did what was role modeled for me and I was pretty judgmental. You know, when I, when I saw someone behaving differently, I um, assumed there was something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And having kids that don't fit in a box made me really think twice about how I uh, evaluate and consider and treat others. So for example, now I do everything in my power to avoid using words like weird or strange or crazy when describing people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, environments can be weird. Um, environments can be crazy, especially the way they treat kids sometimes, but kids and people are not crazy. Um, you know, I, th- I look back at the kids who were different in my own elementary school. And as far as I remember, I don't, I didn't bully them, but, you know, I also didn't help them as much as I wish I would have. Mm-hmm. I didn't have compassion or empathy. Um, and now not only do I have compassion or empathy, I enjoy people who are different. Like life mm-hmm. is more fun and fuller and yeah. more interesting with people who don't fit in a box. You know, this yeah. whole box thing is really, really, really boring. Really? And I think we could <laughs> really boring. Um, and if you look at the people who are doing fantabulous things in the world, like putting, you know, people out in outer space, yeah. um, or, you know, name anything, they have unique ways of thing, but yes. being, but also, you know, kids who aren't ever going to rule the world or run a company. You know, when I watch them play on the playground and they like approach the way they uh, play with their truck differently, I find that fascinating. Yeah. I, I just could sit and watch them for a long time. So I think um, my kids have helped brought more joy to my life and less judgment. Mm, um, nice. Nice. Uh, yeah. 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 And thank you for sharing that, uh, that vulnerability because, um, it's important. We, we, we all have been there. We all have been there and looking back and, um, you know, hopefully we grow and mature as we get older and we learn from our ways in the past and especially having empathy for kids and knowing that it's just so easy for kids to fall into certain patterns and behaviors and groups. And like you said, it's human nature and developmentally appropriate in many ways. And so we got to be, we got to be kind to ourselves, forgive ourselves and just do our best to create these environments for our kids and others that is, are more accepting and affirming. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. Kayla, it's time for the parent footprint moment quote. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> it's Tell- so open-ended. I it don't is. know where to go, but go for it it. I'll, I'll shoot go. from the hip. We'll see what we can do. Okay, you got this. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids' lives, and or those you love. Okay. So since we've been talking about being a parent uh, in this conversation, I'll, I'll, I'll continue along that thread. And I wrote about this in the book, actually. There, when my child was about two or three, I think three, she came to me and said, Mommy, that babysitter is mean. I don't like that babysitter. And I did what I believed I should do as a parent. And that is basically um, keep her in line. You know, I needed uh, to go to work. I needed to do something and we needed a babysitter. And I assumed that she just would rather be with me than with a babysitter. So I pretty much dismissed her. And she came forward a few times. But then 
One night in bed, as I was putting her down, she looked at me with these big round eyes and said, um, really, really innocently, she said, mommy, Jenna makes my heart turn brown. Mm. And I was a little bit shocked because, again, she was so young and this was so visual. And I'm not a terribly visual person. And and so the imagery struck me. And also, you know, she was three. What does she know about anatomy? Mm-hmm. So I asked her, okay, honey, uh, well, what? Well, I didn't say okay. I said, what color is your heart normally? And she said, well, pink or red or something like that. But when I think of Jenna, my heart turns gray or brown or or what color is it when things burn and they die oh and again that was juxtaposed with these big round innocent eyes and i was almost speechless Mm -hmm. and at this moment i think i started realizing a few things first of all that my child was highly sensitive Mm -hmm. that she was able to notice things other people weren't noticing and she was able to express herself in a way that was a bit unusual. Um, I, you know, I started thinking of her as an old soul about that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I also started realizing, you know, she, because she was noticing these things and more sensitive to these things, it took me some time, but this was probably the beginning of my journey of uh, beginning to realize mm-hmm. that I couldn't parent her the same way I parented my other kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she is an individual and needed an individual response. And when she first came to me, I assumed she was like my other kids and was just complaining about being with a babysitter. And really there was something else going on. And so I learned that I really needed to appreciate her differences and validate her story and listen to her if I was going to be a good parent. And that wasn't always going to look the same way as it did with my other kids. And that wasn't unfair. I wasn't playing favorites, but I was individualizing my parent parenting for my kids. And I started, uh, you know, being less judgmental with myself about that and saying, you know, that that's okay. Nice. That is, there's so much in that, that moment, right? That the several moments that make that moment so much there. Um, I think I, so. It, it really yeah. blew me away. Yeah. And it and, really helped me start to see her so much better. Right. And for our kids that, um, do perceive the world differently and, um, to have, for us to have the, to pause, to be mindful enough in our busy days to just stop and consider what our kids are saying, even at ages when we don't think that they should or could be aware of the things they are, many of our kids are, and how important it is to listen and to honor it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm right there with yeah. you, Dr. Dan. And thanks for all you're yeah. doing to yeah. help us become more sensitive to these issues. Well, Kayla, thank you. This, um, your book is, it is a journey, everyone. When you go out and get Canaries Among Us, a mother's journey to honor her child's individuality in a culture determined to negate it. It is, um, it's a story that most people will resonate in some form or in all forms. And also it's such a, in my experience, it's just a, it's a beacon for us really being aware of the impact of bullying and how prevalent it is. The, the common, 
the common occurrence of neurodiverse brains. You know, 25% of humans have neurodiverse brains. It could be even more, um, especially mm -hmm. as we continue to evolve and technology mm -hmm. continues to evolve the way we process information. Different brains designed to do different things. All of these brains are needed in our mm -hmm. society and need to be valued. Cheers to that. Kayla, tell everyone where they can find your book now and, um, and more of what you're doing behind the scenes to help this cause. Right. So Kayla Taylor, uh, 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 KaylaTaylorWrites.com is the website where you can go to get more information. And the book Canaries Among Us is available at any of your favorite stores. I will do a little plug for the um, independent bookstores. Mm -hmm. And right now, especially during this Bullying Awareness Month, I'm just doing what I can to spread the word on how important it is to understand the issues of bullying and also, of course, neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. um, and I welcome anybody who wants to continue the conversation. I would love to talk with them. And Dan, uh, Dr. Dan, thank you for using your platform um, to enhance understanding and compassion. It, it, it's really, really important. And I, and I value and appreciate what you're doing. Oh. Thank you, Kayla. We are we are completely aligned and um, so glad that we could have this conversation and share it with others. All right, everyone, that concludes this conversation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. Please share this with anyone and everyone you know who will benefit from this information. We have so we have come far and we have far, far, far to go when it comes to preventing bullying and to understanding and embracing neurodiversity. Do your best to be the person you want your child to become. And as always, ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.